right. Well, we are still in Acts. If you had any question, we'll be in Acts for a while. Um, it's a long book, and we're taking it one section at a time, and we're just moving right along. We've kind of uh, opening up a new chapter today. It's in the middle of a chapter, but it's kind of a new, a new story. So I just want to read Acts, 9, uh, Acts 11, 19 through 30, and then we'll, we'll work our way through the text. So verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, think back, remember that. Stephen preached a sermon. It was uh, comical if it wasn't tragic. They literally plugged their ears and started hollering and screaming as they charged him because they didn't want to hear what he said. And then they, they seized him and, and they murdered him. And he was the first martyr of the church. And everything had been going really good up till then. And a lot of people had stayed in town to be a part of it. And then when Stephen was murdered, most of them left. Matter of fact, says everybody but the apostles left. And they went back where they came from. Most of them had, had come in for the, for the uh, Passover and whatnot. So that's the group of people we're talking about. And it says, it says, They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Think back. We remember Barnabas. We met him a couple times. Verse 23. When he arrived and saw the, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples as each one was able, decided to provide help for, their, for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So on the surface, it's just a good story. Not a lot of, not a lot of excitement here, but let's dig a little deeper. And let's see what we, can, what we can pull out of this. So in your notes, uh, on Acts 11, 19, uh, I want you to see the phrase among the Jews and let me read that verse again now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews so these were Jewish believers who lived in places other than Jerusalem a lot of them lived in Gentile cities they went back to their Gentile cities where there were probably a large population of Jews. They usually settled together, met in synagogues, things like that. And they shared the gospel with the other Jews. Now, it's interesting because we just talked about how God's plan was always to bring in the Gentiles. And then we have this whole scene with Cornelius and Peter. 
and the announcement was made, and, and, and everything's officially changed, and the Gentiles are welcomed into the church, and now we, we hear about, we're kind of going back, this is kind of a, and meanwhile, this was happening. So we have this, meanwhile, this was happening, and it, it's among the Jews, so we're kind of back to where we started, it's among the Jews, and I want you to see something. I, I, I said, I've said this probably a dozen times, I want to say it again, I'm going to keep saying it, because I don't want you to miss this. In a nutshell, this is exactly what God had planned. It's exactly what was supposed to happen. Every detail is exactly according to God's plan. So, one, two, three, and four in your notes. Uh, this happened as prescribed in Acts 1.8. It's according to God's plan, as prescribed. He said, go to Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. They're, they're taking it out farther from Jerusalem. Number two, it's happening as commanded in Matthew 28. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. This is happening. So as prescribed, as commanded. Number three, as initiated. If you think back to Stephen's martyrdom when he was murdered, we talked about that was the catalyst to get them to leave Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem. They, they departed. They, they started the process of going to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But number four, this is kind of a new addition to the list. Number four, this happened at a pace set by the sovereign God. It's not in the text, but people much smarter than I am who have mapped out the life of Saul and other uh, chronological elements in Scripture have determined that from uh, Pentecost to the church in Antioch is about seven years. So seven years have passed. That's a lot longer than I would have thought. Seven years have passed. So God is in control of the pace here. It's seven years. He gave the command. He laid out the goal. He set things in motion. But it took seven years before the first church was established in the Gentile community. About seven years before the command went out to Peter that Gentiles are not unclean. And, and you need to share the gospel with them. It, it took five, six, seven years. And, and that's important. It, it's, it's important for us to realize that. So not only did God prescribe what would happen, He commanded it to happen, He initiated it, and then He controlled the pace. And, and just off the surface, I just want to say that, you know, we talk about waiting for God. We talk about getting out of God's way and letting Him do His work. Sometimes the waiting for God is the hardest part. It's also the longest part. Sometimes we don't know what's happening. And so observation number one in your notes there, I want you to realize God is not anxious. God is not anxious. He was not trying to figure out how to get the Gentiles involved. He was not hoping someone would appear on the scene who could be his guy. He wasn't worried about any of this. This was according to plan. He needed to get Saul in place. He needed to get Barnabas in place. He needed to get Jewish believers that were discipled and trained and able to teach others. It's all according to his pace. So he's not anxious, and he will not be rushed. I have tried so many times to rush God. I have literally tried to convince him that he needed to move faster, more dramatically, and according to my wishes. He's never said, wow, Dave, thanks for your perspective. I didn't see it that way before. But now, I think you're right. Never happened. He's, he's not anxious, and he won't be rushed. But 
when it comes to his sovereign will, he cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. Okay, so, so that's, that's something we can pretty much, we can agree with those statements. Mentally, we agree with those statements. Here's the hard part. The hard part here is that even though we know the destination, we are completely oblivious to the path God plans to get there. We know the rapture is coming. We know there's going to be a time of tribulation. We know there'll be a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then we know there'll be the new heaven and the new earth. We know the destination, and we know the uh, sequence of events from the rapture on. We're, we're actually given quite a bit of detail. But until the rapture, we have no idea what's going on. We can read the signs. We can speculate. We can ask for God's will to be revealed. But so much of what God does, he is the holder of the plan, and he's not compelled to share it with us. Just look at these guys. From, from uh, false Judaism till now when the Gentiles have their first church, these, these guys, these guys that are involved in the process, the apostles and, and these others, they've experienced the death of Jesus. They experienced the murder of Stephen. They saw their leaders arrested and put in jail. They saw... Uh, Saul go on a, a rampage against the church, arresting believers, um, torturing them, maybe definitely coercing them in interrogation, and then having them executed. And they saw Ananias and Sapphira drop dead in front of the church. These are all questionable things. These are all hard things. These are all difficult things. They saw all this, and all these were necessary to get to this point. They also saw the resurrection of Jesus. They saw lots of healings. They saw miracles take place. They, they saw lots of people getting saved, Jews and Gentiles. They've experienced dreams and they've experienced visions. And they've even seen people risen from the dead. So there's a lot of good things too. But if you were going to draw the map between Pentecost and the first Gentile church, you probably wouldn't draw it with these things being the road markers. This would not be the path you take. They did not know what path it was going to take. They thought it was over when Jesus died. Momentarily, they thought, this is it. It didn't work. Now what are we going to do? When Stephen died, people got scared and they ran. When the apostles were arrested, their leaders were taken out of commission. What do we do now? Okay. When Saul was going around arresting people, he had people scared to death. After he got saved, they were still scared to death, but maybe it was a trick. When Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in front of the church, I'm sure there was a, a, a bit of controversy. A little bit of talking going on. Like, what's, what have we signed up for? And then the good things happened. There were celebrations. There was praise and worship given to God. Uh, uh, probably a lot of ups and downs. A lot of times we know what's coming, but most of the time we have no idea how we're going to get there. Okay? We have no idea how we're going to get there. That speaks to a lot of situations. It speaks to a lot of situations. Health, relationships, finances, um, anything you can think of. You know, our final destination is to be with Jesus in heaven. To be raptured one day, to be with him before the thousand-year reign of Christ, to rule with him during the thousand years, then to go into the new heaven and the earth. That's our final destination. But we might go through tragedy along the way. We might have great triumph along the way. We might be dead broke one day and, and rich another day. Our health might have a crisis. Our loved one's health 
might have a crisis. We could face persecution as a church. We could face persecution as individuals. Your pastor, one day in the future, might be arrested for good stuff, not bad stuff. Um, we don't know what's coming. But God's sovereign will is always accomplished. Nothing Satan throws into the mix can stop God from accomplishing his will. And, and there's some comfort there. I can endure whatever comes on this earth because I know that eternity is so much bigger and better than where I'm at now. Where I'm at now is actually just a, a blip on the screen compared to what's coming. And God has a purpose. I can be involved in God's purpose. You know what? I, I know I would say this. I bet most of you would say this. If, if my son or daughter was guaranteed to be saved, if I got cancer, I sign up today. If my neighbors, perhaps, if, if I was able to bring people to Christ by my crisis, by walking through it in front of them, I would probably say, yeah, sign me up. I wouldn't be excited about it necessarily because it's going to be hard. But I know God is sovereign. And we have to look at our present situation in light of an eternal perspective. And, and they didn't know what was going on when many of these things happened. And we don't know what's going on when many things happen to us. But God is not anxious. He will not be rushed. And His sovereign will cannot be stopped. And I just want us to see that right off the bat. Acts 11.20, which now is the seven years later, it says, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Well, the them, we talked about who the them are. Uh, um, these are witnesses of Stephen's murder. That's your first blank there in your notes. Witnesses of Stephen's murder. They were Jews living in and among the Gentiles. Many Jewish people moved to the Roman cities, moved to the Greek cities, moved to foreign cities because uh, they could prosper there, because there was land there, opportunity. They didn't, they didn't lose their faith. They were living there. And then they became believers, and they continued to live there. So they were Jews living among Gentiles already. And they were men and probably women, uh, probably most definitely women, men and women, discipled enough to know their calling, but perhaps fearful. I, I wonder why they went to to uh, Antioch. Why didn't they stay in Cyprus and Cyrene? There were plenty of Greek people in Cyprus and Cyrene. Why did they go to Antioch? Uh, one option is that they had friends there. They knew people there. Maybe they knew um, Gentiles who... who were interested in the God of Judaism and they went to tell them about Jesus. Maybe that's the case. Maybe they were fearful and thought, let's, you know, I think this is what God wants us to do. Let's go over here and let's, let's tell them where our families aren't in jeopardy and things like this. But maybe it was fearful, maybe it wasn't. But they had been discipled enough to do this. It took seven years for the Gentiles to learn the scripture enough, to learn enough about Jesus and enough about the gospel for them to go out then and share it with other Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have the Jewish history. These guys did, and they went and talked to the, to the Greeks. Now, number two in your notes, I want you to catch this. They went specifically to speak to Greeks. In the rest of the passage, they're called Greeks. 
Okay, they went specifically to speak to Greeks about the good news of Jesus. I want you to know that Antioch is not in Greece. I double-checked this morning just to make sure. It's not in Greece. It's in Syria. Antioch is in Syria. So do you think there was a huge population of Greek people living in Syria, and they, they just went on a mission trip to, to reach the Greeks? No. This is a new term for the Gentiles. The Gentile was a, was a nasty word. It was a derogatory word. It, it was not politically correct outside of Judaism. Gentile was, a, was, a, it was an insult. You're a Gentile. I'm a Jew. That makes me good and you bad. Greek was a cleaned up word. It was a, a more respectable word. It was a new word to communicate people that weren't Jews. And think back, we just had this whole thing with Peter and Cornelius. About the same time, probably preceding it, not very far, the word has spread out, it got to Jerusalem, uh, they've talked, it's got out, and now these people, probably encouraged by what happened with Peter and what happened with Cornelius, that probably triggered the thought, hey, you know what? Let's go to Antioch. Let's go to Antioch and share the gospel. And we need to show up not calling them, you dirty Gentiles. Let's, let's refer to them as the Greeks. And so the story, as told to Luke, the attitude has changed. Now it's not those outsiders. Now it's people that Jesus died for. People that the gospel is presented for. People that can be saved. People that can join us in the kingdom of God. So now they're called a respectable name. And I want you to see the change. God announced, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And he took Peter right into the home of a Gentile. And he and his household and many friends got saved. And he stayed and they, they, he taught them things. Then he came back and he shared with the church and the people in the church in Jerusalem. said, wow, this is great. We can't believe what's happening. The word got out. Now they've left with a new attitude. It's not those such and such. Now it's the Greeks. And the Greeks would have been a term for everybody else. So in that time period, this is what they did. In verse 21, it says, the, Lord, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You can already guess the blanks, because I just took them right out of Scripture. The Lord's hand was with them. What does that mean? Well, that means His power was with them. His provision was with them. His guidance was with them. His preparation was with them. He prepared the people to receive the message. He prepared them to give the message. He guided them to the place to be, the church, the, to, the, to the households. He provided what they needed to live on. He gave them the power. Basically, what this is saying is it, it's not us, it's God. Okay? The Lord's hand was with them. And Luke would have reflected what he was told. So I'm confident... In the telling of the story, when Luke was receiving this story, the people in Antioch were saying, the Lord's hand did this. The people that went to Antioch were saying, God was doing something incredible. And so God is given the credit. The Lord's hand was with them. Nothing we do is, is ever by our own strength, or our own intelligence, or our own will. Anything we accomplish for God is by the hand of God. And we always need to give God the glory and the credit as well. And, and that just needs to be a thought process that's constantly on our minds. 
It's not me, it's God. It wasn't my idea, God put this idea in my head. Uh, it's, it's not me. And that's, that's the humility we need that also creates the dependence on God, that constant understanding that I don't have the power, I don't have the resources, I don't have the ideas, and I'm not ready, but with God I can do this because he's called me. Number two in your notes, a great number of people believe. Just says it, and a, and a great number of people believe. They believed what? They believed Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross so their sins could be forgiven. He rose again, um, proving who he was and that he was offering them the forgiveness of sins so that they too could be resurrected and spend eternity in heaven. He shared, they shared the gospel and people believed. But then there's the phrase, number three, and turned to the Lord. Turned to the Lord. They didn't just believe, they experienced a change. And I think this is important. It's, it's here because the author wants us to know that, that these people really did believe. They really did believe, and it was evidenced by their changed lives. And I want to say that every um, conversion results in a lifestyle change. Some quickly and dramatically, some a little slower over time. But the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. And the Holy Spirit will challenge us to make changes. We'll read in God's Word, and all of a sudden we'll see things we never saw before. And, and, and we'll do things differently. The fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, joy, kindness, all these things will start to appear. Because fruit grows from a healthy tree. And we can't stop the fruit from growing, so it's going to show up. And so a true conversion always reflects change, and these people turn to the Lord. They started depending on the Lord. They started praying to the Lord. They, were, they put their faith in the Lord. And, and, and eventually, uh, skip a little ways ahead, they were called Christians. That means little Christs. They were known as little Christs. The Jews were not known as little Christs before this. These Gentiles, or Greeks, were known as little Christs. So they changed so much that they became identified by outsiders as little Christs, and they were called Christians. So the hand of the Lord caused all these things, brought this about, many people believed, and their lives were changed. 22 through 24 says, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. Everything goes back to headquarters. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay? When he arrived and saw the grace, saw what the grace of God had done, again giving credit to God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true, the changed lifestyle with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Well, let's talk about Barnabas. We met Barnabas the very first time in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas was the, the balance to Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira stole their land, claimed they give it all to God, but did not. Barnabas did sell his land and did give all the profits to the church. So Barnabas was generous. He had sold land and donated it to the church. That was Acts 4. He's also the one who, when Saul showed up in town and said, Hey guys, I'm saved. Let me tell you about it. And they said, No, we've, we're not falling for this one. You need to work a little harder. This one's way too obvious. Barnabas stepped in, heard Saul, brought him back to the apostles and said, Hey, you need to hear his story. And then in hearing the story brought them together. So he basically introduced the saved Saul to the people he had been 
persecuting. And now in this passage, he's called a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was righteous. He was growing. He was serving. He was leading. Not many people are called good men in Scripture. That's, that's a term that's not thrown out very much. But Barnabas was a good man. I would say that Barnabas was, was a man who led from the middle or led from the back. Number two, let's expand on that. Barnabas encouraged them in their faith and practice. Barnabas encouraged them. That makes sense because his name is Barnabas, being son of encouragement. He was characterized by encouragement. Okay, he, and said he encouraged them to remain true. He challenged them. He prodded them. He, he helped them along the way. And here's what happened. At the end of verse 24, it says, And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It didn't say Barnabas preached and 3,000 people got saved. It doesn't say Barnabas raised, any from the, raised someone from the dead and then preached and people got saved. It doesn't say that Barnabas healed someone who had been lame for eight years and then shared Christ and someone got saved. It said, and a, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I think the implication here is that a whole lot of people had a whole lot of parts in the process and a whole lot of people got saved. That Barnabas came to encourage them to keep doing what they're doing, to keep living like they're living, to keep uh, being turned to the Lord. And as they did that, they reached their neighbors. They reached their friends. They did what they were supposed to do. They lived the way they're supposed to live. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Not Barnabas. Barnabas was just a part of it. He was the encourager. He was the guy in the background going, you can do this. Go for it. So observation number two Barnabas is such an important figure in God's work because he was generous. He was friendly. And he was faithful and obedient. He was generous in Acts 4. Okay? He was friendly in Acts 9. And today we find him faithful and obedient. These, these characteristics are what we know about Barnabas. This forms who he is. And it's not written in your notes, but write it in there somewhere. Just write, be a Barnabas. If you want to model your life after someone from the New Testament, don't pick Peter. Don't, I mean, pick Peter if you want, but I'm going to say Barnabas is a better choice. Barnabas is the guy you want to be like. He's known for his generosity, for being friendly, for being faithful and obedient. He's an encourager. He played a significant role in many people coming to the Lord through his encouragement of the saints who were forming this church. Be a Barnabas. Verse 25 and 26 says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. If you remember, Saul had gone home because he just couldn't have any peace, being who he used to be in Jerusalem. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I believe this is the first Gentile church. It's the first non-Jewish church. Probably, I think it's the first church mentioned outside of Jerusalem. And it's the first place they were called Christians, little Christs. Here's what I want you to notice here, though. Number one and number two go together. Number one, Barnabas saw a need in Antioch, and he knew just the right person for the job. He saw the need, and he knew the person for the job. So he went and found Saul. And then number two, 
Barnabas saw a need in Saul and knew just the right ministry to mentor him. Saul needed somewhere to serve. Antioch needed someone to serve them. Saul needed someone to teach. Antioch needed someone to teach them. So Barnabas said, hey, I'm going to go get Saul. He brought Saul in, and he didn't just drop Saul off. He didn't say, hey, Saul, good luck. These people need a good teacher. I'll check in in a year or two. He stayed with Saul for a year, and he mentored him. He discipled him. So number three, God's plan for a church and for developing qualified leaders was working great. I just want to throw that out there again. It's working great. We have the first Gentile church. First time and place believers are called Christians. Here's observation number three. Discipleship and mentorship relationships, or mentoring relationships, are key to accomplishing God's plan for his people and his church here on earth. Think about it. Jesus discipled many people, but he mentored 12. The apostles discipled the church in Jerusalem, Barnabas being one of them. Those disciples are now discipling Greeks in Antioch. And Barnabas is mentoring Saul. We're going to find, we're going to flesh that mentoring relationship out a little while later, but just realize that Barnabas is, Barnabas is mentoring Saul. Remember, Saul becomes Paul. Paul is the author of the majority of the New Testament. So Barnabas, the encourager, mentors Saul, who becomes Paul. Paul writes most of the New Testament. You see the connection there? Barnabas played a role in us receiving most of the New Testament. And he did it through encouragement, through mentoring. All right? And then the last section, 27 through 30, uh, I'm not going to read that for the sake of time, but I, I just want you to realize that it's here for, for a single purpose, I believe, to show you that this church was a real church. This church was a real church doing church-like things. Uh, People were visiting them from Jerusalem. That, that gives them credibility. Uh, ministry was taking place. Prophets showed up. Prophecy was given. Okay? Then the disciples who were there decided, wow, there's going to be a famine. We need to help the people in Jerusalem. They are having it particularly hard because they're among the Jews who mostly hate them. They're having a particularly hard time. of it. So we're going to send them money. Do you realize that they were also in the Roman Empire, and they were also in the same famine. So these people who were experiencing the same famine they were experiencing in Jerusalem saw a greater need in Jerusalem. They took up an offering, and they sent it to Jerusalem, and they sent it with Barnabas and Saul. This is a church being a church. They were completely legitimate, and I think that's the reason this is here, so that we see them doing what a church does. They were called a church, they acted like a church, they ministered as a church. It's a real church doing real ministry. And here's a final observation. The exact place we want to be as believers is in the center of God's will, doing God's work, and seeing God accomplish great things, no matter how long it takes. And almost everything we talked about is in that statement. The exact place we want to be. If I want to be effective, if I want to have the most joy, the most peace in my heart, if I want to, to have the most effect on people, um, I need to be exactly where God wants me to be. I need to be doing His work. Not my agenda. Not my plan. God's plan, God's agenda, on His pace. 
And then I will see God accomplishing great things. I won't see me accomplishing great things. I won't see other people accomplishing great things. I will see God accomplishing great things. I will see God using me and using other people to accomplish great things so that we all stand back and say, wow, look what God is doing among us. Look what God has been able to do right here in Kathlamet. Look what God is doing right here at Heritage Bible Church. Look what God is doing right here in my family. Look what God is able to do because I'm serving Him and I'm obeying Him. I'm doing His will. And then I will remember in that process that it will take as long as it takes. I will, I will pray as long as I have to pray. I'll serve as long as I have to serve. I'll obey as long as I have to obey. I will, I will spend all that time possibly not having answers, only questions. Not knowing the outcome, only being hopeful. But still knowing that God's sovereign will cannot be stopped. And that He is in charge so I can rest in the fact that He's doing it His way. And His way is not only the best way, it should be the only way. So my final observation, we read it again, the exact place we want to be as believers is in the center of God's will, which we find out by Scripture, by prayer, wise counsel, doing His work, using the gifts He's given us, taking advantage of the opportunities He provides, even the direct, the, the direct sending, and seeing God accomplish great things, watching for Him, and then I'm in it for the long haul. I just think that for a lot of us today, the message is we're in it for the long haul. We're in it for the long haul. We don't know what's coming. We don't, we don't know where it's going. We know way less than the questions we have. And we, and we just kind of kind of get to the point where we say, you know, God, you're in charge. I'm with you. What do you want me to do? I'm with you. Where do you want me to go? I'm with you. I'll wait as long as I have to wait. Even when I can't see the solution, I can't see the answer, I can't see the good thing that you've promised, even when I can't even pick out the silver lining on the cloud, I will trust you. Because you're the sovereign God whose will is always accomplished. And I will continue to serve you. I think that's what God asks of us. And I know it's easier said than done. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your will is always accomplished. That you always get to the place you want to be. And you always bring the people you want to bring with you. And you never fail. Father, as, as humans on this side of eternity, sometimes it's hard to see what's going on. And why we, need, why we think we need to see what's going on, I don't know, but it's human nature. Uh, we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. Father, help us to humbly submit to you and let you be in charge and call the shots. And let us just ride the train with you to get to where we need to be in your time by your process. Help build that type of faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.